Bonjour à tous, veuillez vous asseoir. In the case of Matthew Winston Brown against Her Majesty the Queen, for the appellant Matthew Winston Brown, Sean Fagan, Michelle Bidolph, for the intervener Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Anil K. Kapoor, and Dana Aktimichuk. For the Intervenor Empowerment Council, Carter Martel and Anita Sigetti, Sarah Renkin and Maya Kotab. For the Intervenor Criminal Lawyers Association, Lindsay Davio, Eric Neubauer. For the Respondent, Her Majesty the Queen, Deborah J. Alford. For the Intervenor Attorney General of Canada, Michael H. Morris, Royal Lee and Rebecca Sewell, for the Intervenor Attorney General of Ontario, Michael Perlin, Jeffrey Wingarden, for the Intervenor Attorney General of Manitoba, Amy Cutler, for the Intervenor Attorney General of British Columbia, Lara Vizoli, for the Intervenor Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Noah Verniskowski, for the intervener, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, Inc., Lara Kinkarts and Megan Stephens. Mr. Fagan. Chief Justice, Justices, Matthew Brown intended on having a relaxing, calm evening with his friends following his university exam period. He intended on consuming some magic mushrooms and alcohol in the safety of his friend's house where they were going to watch movies and play board games. He did not intend, nor could he have foreseen what happened next. Not the extreme intoxication, not the running naked and barefoot in minus 20 degree weather, and certainly not the break and enter and assault of Miss Hamnet. And the principles of fundamental justice that run at the core of our criminal justice system hold that he should not be held criminally liable for these actions. The Alberta Court of Appeal erred in overturning the Honorable Justice DeWitt's declaration of invalidity of Section 33.1. I will be addressing the application of Section 7 and 11D. My colleague, Ms. Bidolf, will be addressing the Section 1 issue. I intend to keep my submissions to less than 15 minutes. In my submissions, I intend on addressing three points. First, the proper scope of 33.1 and the fact that it does not include objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication nor violence. Two, even if it does possess those elements, it does not solve the Section 7 issue. And three, uh, if Section 33.1 does possess objective foreseeability, Matthew Brown should still be entitled to an acquittal. My first point, the proper inter er, interpretation of Section 33.1 is one that does not include objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication nor of violence. All that is required by way of mental element is that which was established by this court in Bouchard-Lebrun, that the accused voluntarily consumed a substance which he or she knew was or should have known was an intoxicant, and the risk of becoming intoxicated was or should have been within his or her contemplation. Contrary to Justice Slatter's reasons, 33.1 is not limited to dangerous intoxicants. It's not limited to illegal substances, uh, illicit substances, nor is there an exception for prescribed medications. In order for 33.1 to have an objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication component, this court would have to read it in. 
and this would be an impermissible level of reading in, uh, and uh, it would be the equivalent of legislating where Parliament chose not to do so. Uh, Parliament specifically and intentionally excluded an objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication in section 33.1. If they wanted uh, to include that requirement, they could have done so quite easily. Uh, the uh, verbiage was available to them. They could have uh, termed this section, uh, for example, where a person consumes an intoxicant in a manner that they know or ought to have known could render them incapable uh, of consciously controlling their behavior. Uh, they chose not to do that. Um, Mr. Fagan, Mr. Fagan, how, how do you respond? How do you respond to the proposition that there's a common sense connection between extreme intoxication and violence, and that Parliament? acknowledged that and acted upon that, and that, that that perhaps was not something in the mind of the court in Davio. There may be a common sense connection, but certainly it's not a causative uh, connection. And this, uh, this fact does not solve the, uh, the Section 7 and 11D issue, uh, because the minimal mental element for uh, any criminal offense uh, is a marked departure and uh, even though there may be a common sense connection, there needs to be more than that. There needs to be um, foreseeability of violence or foreseeability of the uh, mental state that uh, led to violence. So even if Section 33.1 were to contain... Uh, it's it's interesting you say that uh, foreseeability of, of uh, the mental state that would lead to violence, it almost suggests somehow that there be a predilection towards aggressive behavior. But um, if you're suffering under delusions, you may be drawn into doing something which is, uh, I mean, quite violent, but, but doesn't arise from the predilection, but really arises from the, the profound state of the delusion. Not, for example, God told me to do it. There's, there's nothing inherently violent about that if, if, you, if you honestly believe in that altered state that you are under a divine commandment. And it's the appellant's position that Section 33.1 do, doesn't require that. Uh, it doesn't have uh, as an element uh, the object of foreseeability of violence nor of uh, extreme intoxication. Uh, and uh, both of these things would be necessary in order for the... Uh, uh, for the section uh, to pass section 7 and 11d scrutiny. You, uh, how do you, I just want to follow up on your suggested uh, how the legislation could work. What's this ought to know one of them? What does the accused have to show that he or she did to do the least checking on whether or not some drug that they're seeing at a party that comes from the street, but they're told it's magic mushrooms, could be anything, but let's assume they're told it's magic mushrooms. What do they have to do in order to sort of satisfy your ought to have known test? That'll be the next argument the defense will be making in cases like this. We're going to require everybody to become, um, you know, toxicologists. So just help me out. What should they do 
to satisfy the Atu of known, as over and above just shutting their eyes and doing nothing. Well, one of the things uh, most critically that they ought to have uh, known is that this uh, substance uh, and the quantity in which they consume the substance could lead to a state uh, of intoxication akin to automatism. Uh, but it's the appellant's position that this section is unsalvageable and that um, the uh, proper way to deal with, uh, uh, with this uh, sort of behavior uh, is for uh, Parliament to enact uh, different legislation, a different offence, um, one that was suggested uh, in the parliamentary committee, such as uh, dangerous intoxication. Uh, because even if um, Section 33.1 uh, were to be read in to include objective foreseeability, uh, it still does not um, solve the, uh, the violation of the principle of fundamental justice laid out by uh, Madam Justice McLaughlin in Martineau that uh, the stigma attached to the offense and available penalties must reflect the particular nature of the crime. So even if ought to have known uh, is read into 33.1, the individual is being found uh, guilty of the wrong offense. There must be uh, an element of personal fault in regard to a culpable aspect of the mens rea, and, and that's a principle of fundamental justice stemming from uh, D'Souza and um, the, the mental element in relation to self-induced intoxication uh, is not connected. Um, logically, uh, there's no necessary link between that mental element uh, and the uh, essential element, uh, the actus reus of uh, assault, which is laid out in Section 265 of the Criminal Code, uh, intentional application of force. I suspect you'd be back again saying that dangerous intoxication is unconstitutional as well. You would find a way. Everybody keeps throwing this and around. May, and maybe we'll say no. Who knows? But everybody keeps throwing it around. And, and yet, you know, I think just if I wanted to right now, I could find a number of holes potentially in this notion of dangerous intoxication uh, that everybody talks about. And certainly it would not be perfect, um, but there... Uh it would likely still violate Section 7 and 11D of the Charter, but it would be easier to uh, justify under Section 1 of the Charter. Moving on to my final point, sir. Um, if objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication uh, were to be read into the provision, uh, Matthew Brown should still be entitled to an acquittal, and that is because Matthew Brown's self-induced intoxication was not a marked departure and he could not have foreseen uh, becoming intoxicated uh, to the state of automatism. Uh, when determining whether a person could foresee uh, the state of extreme intoxication, circumstances matter. Um, the consideration should be um, the environmental circumstances, the personal circumstances, uh, the quality of the substance uh, consumed, as well as the quantity of the substance consumed. With respect to the environmental circumstances, what sort of environment did this intoxication take place in? Uh, did it take place in a busy bar, on a busy highway, on a rooftop patio, uh, in a bar? Um, did it take place uh, surrounded by uh, dangerous work equipment or tools, weapons? Or, as in the case of Mr. Brown, did it take place in a safe environment, in the home of a trusted friend's uh, 
and uh, with the intention of not leaving the house, playing board games and, and watching a movie. Essentially, these are uh, circumstances that are as safe as it gets. Uh, with respect to the personal circumstances, what did uh, Mr. Brown know or a person in the shoes of Mr. Brown uh, know? And what was his uh, proclivity for violence? Uh, well, Mr. Brown had no history of violence, whether intoxicated or sober, uh, no violent tendencies whatsoever. Uh, he had one prior experience with uh, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, which was a calming experience that gave him a fuzzy feeling. Uh, there was no indication to him um, or a person in his shoes that uh, he could become uh, intoxicated to the level of an automaton. With respect to the quality and the quantity of the substance consumed, uh, the, trial, uh, the trial justice, Madam Justice Hollins, found that there was no reliable evidence as to the amount of the substance uh, consumed. Um, the court heard expert evidence and made findings of fact, um, accepting uh, the expert's uh, testimony that uh, magic mushroom uh, consumption is not typically correlated uh, with criminal activity or violence. Uh, but if it is, uh, uh, sorry, if there are uh, uh, any of the events that um, did come before uh, uh, the experts, uh, typically the violence was self-inflicted harm as opposed to harm on, uh, on another person. So in all the circumstances, uh, even if an objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication could be read into this provision, uh, Matthew Brown should be uh, entitled to an acquittal. Uh, Mr. I Fagan, can I, can I roll, you, roll you back just a bit um, to your discussion about um, penal negligence as a possible route uh, forward here? Uh, for Parliament, if it can't be if it can't be read in, and I understand your position, uh, but one thing I didn't understand in reading your factum was you seem to suggest that the actus reus and mens rea need to happen simultaneously. You say that at paragraph 38 of your factum, and I'm wondering what you have to say in respect of Justice um, Slater's uh, reference to Creighton which strikes me as a useful, uh, a useful tool here, that, that um, the idea that mens rea need not uh, correspond to the consequence of the act, that, there, that symmetry is not required between mens rea and actus reus. Is, 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 that, a, is that a helpful way to think through the, the offense at 33.1? It's not of much assistance. Um, the principle principles of fundamental justice do hold that uh, intent, either objective or, or subjective, need not, need not extend to the full consequences of the unlawful act. Uh, but in, in this case, um, the mens rea does not even extend to the actus reus, let alone the consequences of the actus reus. In Creighton, uh, the consequences were death. There was no issue, there was no question, and I believe Creighton even admitted uh, the actus reus of the offense uh, of administering uh, cocaine into another. In D'Souza, the consequences were bodily harm. There was no question uh, that D'Souza intended to throw the bottle across uh, the bar. In Matthew Brown's case, not only did Matthew Brown not intend uh, the mental state that he was in, he did not in intend uh, the act uh, of assaulting or breaking into Miss Hamnett's home, nor did he intend the consequences, the injuries that she resulted. So uh, the principle um, that the court enunciated in uh, D'Souza and Creighton is not directly applicable to uh, the, the circumstances in section 33.1.
And I note the time and I want to leave sufficient time for my colleague, Ms. Bidolf, to address the Section 1 issue. So subject to any questions on Section 7 and 11D, uh, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. So as Mr. Fagan said, my submissions will focus on the Section 1 analysis. As some of my submissions will be quite similar to what you heard from Mr. Gourlay a few weeks ago in the Sullivan and Chan hearings, um, I intend to use the bulk of my limited time to today to address the elements of the Oaks analysis that he did not have time to address, which is minimal impairment and the final proportionality analysis. Briefly, I'll outline my submissions on pressing a substantial objective. In my submission, only the protective purpose is the true purpose of this provision. The accountability purpose is stated at too narrow a level of abstraction, and in reality, it's a description of the effects of the provision, not its purpose. To understand what I mean here, in my submission, it's useful to look back at what actually makes a criminal law in Canada. In the margarine reference, which is at tab 10 of our contents book, this court held that a cri criminal prohibition is not merely a prohibition backed by a penalty enacted in a vacuum. Instead, it has to be enacted for a valid criminal law purpose, which Justice Rand in that case defined as the evil or injurious or undesirable effect upon the public against which the law is directed. So when we're looking at the evil or injurious or undesirable effect upon the public here, what it is is the commission of violent acts against others. What Section 33.1 seeks to do is to deter others from committing such acts while in a state of intoxication. So in my submission, it's the protective purpose that ought, to be, that ought to anchor the Oaks analysis here. With respect to rational connection, again, my submissions are brief. The protective purpose depends for any rational connection on an assumption of deterrence, as the imposition of criminal liability on an individual can only protect others in the future from similar criminal, criminal acts if it deters future intoxicated violence. In the court below, they founded this rational connection on the deterrence of the consumption of intoxicants, and presumably, therefore, implicitly, on the deterrence of, the on the deterrence of intoxicated violence. But what we're missing here in the record is that link between the consumption of intoxicants and violence. Section 33.1 does not amend the common law, which already stipulates that intoxication is not and has never been a defense to a general intent crime. All that section 33.1 does is remove the defense of automatism, where that automatism is caused by self-induced intoxication. I'm wondering if, if, if you're suggesting too high a standard, Ms. Biddulph, in light of uh, the court's decision some years ago in Hatterian Brethren, in particular that section one analysis. Um, I mean, I, I read it as, as, as not really imposing much of an obligation on the state at all uh, to, to uh, show anything more than sort of, a, I think the language was a reasonable prospect that the limit will further the objective to some extent, um, not that, not that uh, it will certainly do so. And, and I wonder if what you're sort of presupposing here is, is maybe not certainty, but a little more rigidity than that which was applied in Hatterian Brethren. Well, in my submission, it's really two different things. The reasonable prospect standard is sort of the standard, but it's a reasonable prospect of what? And in answering that question of what, we look back to RJR McDonald, which stated that at the rational connection stage, there must be a causal link between the purpose and the effects of the provision. So that causal link need only be 
proven on a reasonable basis standard, but there still needs to be that causal link. And that's what we say is missing here. There's simply no evidence in the record of a causal link between the consumption of dissociative drugs, because to be clear, Section 33.1 does not capture intoxication by alcohol. That's in the very preamble to the provision. So is there a link between the consumption of dissociative drugs and violence? There's no evidence for that link in the record, and we cannot simply infer it based on an absence of evidence whatsoever. So moving now to minimal impairment, my submissions are very much tied to Mr. Fagan's submissions on the interpretation of the provision. The reason why we say this provision is not minimally impairing of charter rights is because it does not say any of the things that the various attorneys general will ask you to read in at the Section 7 stage in order to avoid a constitutional infringement. It does not require proof of any objective foreseeability of harm. It does not require proof of any recklessness or negligence in consuming a substance. And it does not require proof that the substance that was consumed was illicit in any manner or that it was consumed in a morally blameworthy manner. The absence of all of those limitations is what takes this provision outside the bounds of minimal impairment. Now, Justice Mulder, you raised the fact that other alternatives can also have potential constitutional issues. But in my submission, that's still no answer to the minimal impairment issue in this case. It's no answer because there is an interpretation of this provision available. No, I'm the not, General. I'm sorry, Ms. Rudolph. I apologize for interrupting you. Your colleague said, here's how you can do it, Parliament. That's all I was responding to. And then he said, here's another way to do it. And that's all I'm responding to. So I'm not for a moment suggesting that foreseeability can be read in objective or subjective into this provision. I apologize, Mr. Smoldaver. I guess I was attributing some of the Attorney General's arguments to your question. But the point is, the fact that there might be other less impairing alternatives does not mean that this provision is minimally impairing. Because when you're looking at the minimal impairment standard, the standard is less impairing, not not impairing. So a less impairing provision can still impair charter rights just to a lesser degree. And that's what means that the provision that was originally enacted here, section 33.1, is not minimally impairing. So with respect to less impairing alternatives, the test is simply whether there's a less drastic means of achieving the purpose of a provision in a real and substantial manner. Here, Parliament could have required proof of a departure from the standard of care in consuming an intoxicant, coupled with some sort of objective foreseeability of a risk of harm or a risk of automatism resulting from consumption of that intoxicant. If it had those requirements, it would still capture people who act in a morally blameworthy manner in intoxicating themselves to the point of automatism and committing violent offenses while excluding individuals who had no such morally bl moral blameworthiness in their consumption of an intoxicant. Or Parliament could have created an entirely new offense that targets exactly what Parliament says is the problem here, excessive intoxication. Sorry, when you talk about no moral blameworthiness in terms of consuming it, are you talking about uh, someone spiking your drink or because you have no idea or, or taking a prescription drug in a way that you thought was appropriate? I, I don't know what you're saying because what to I'm suggest there's no sorry. moral blameworthiness seems to me when you're taking a drug like magic mushrooms is <laughs> you're, you're way ahead of me. So what I'm getting at is 
the broadness of this provision. It doesn't capture just the consumption of illicit substances like magic mushrooms. It also captures the consumption of things like prescription medication. And I hope we can all agree that there's no moral blameworthiness in consuming medication as prescribed to you. If that medication then results in a state of automatism in which you commit a criminal offense, it would be captured by section 33.1. And that's why I say there are people who would not be morally blameworthy in their consumption of the intoxicant that are currently captured by the wording of section 33.1. With respect to the offense of extreme intoxication or excessive intoxication causing bodily harm, that was an option that was open to parliament and it was something that parliament considered. It's objective, objection to such an offense seemed to be rooted in two things, punishment and labeling. With respect to punishment, that's not really a valid objection because parliament is parliament. There's nothing stopping it from legislating a broad sentencing range for any offense. It could legislate a maximum sentence of 14 years or even life and no minimum sentence so that any sentencing judge can craft a fit sentence that captures the actual moral blameworthiness of the conduct. With respect to labeling, Parliament's argument seemed to be that it would view it as unfair for a, for a person to be convicted of, say, intoxication causing bodily harm instead of aggravated assault, where their actions resulted in the wounding of another. But in my submission, that argument seems really to be an argument based on stigma, as it suggests that the person should suffer the stigma of a criminal conviction for a particular offense and not a criminal conviction whatsoever. Any arguments that are based on minimum thresholds of stigma are normally arguments for a specific mens rea, not arguments for no mens rea whatsoever. So in my submission, these objectives to various objections to various alternatives are not valid bases upon which this co court can conclude that an offense of intoxication causing bodily harm or excessive intoxication or any other offense that act actually captures the conduct target targeted by parliament would not substantially achieve parliament's purpose. Because these alternatives exist, in my submission, section 33.1 cannot be minimally impairing. Moving now to the final proportionality analysis. We have before to look you get, at the before you get, sorry to interrupt you, but before you get there, I wanna circle back to Justice Brown's comment because I'm wondering if you're asking minimal impairment to do too much work here. That there, you know, there was a range of options before parliament. If you look at the, debates before Parliament, there was strengths and weaknesses with all of them. Par uh, parliamentarians took advice and, and opted. I'm wondering if we might, because I'm just listening to it, sounds like a lot of your arguments are really deleterious effects outweighing salutary benefit arguments rather more than minimal impairment arguments. And I'm wondering if you're kind of pushing us back to a pre-Hutterite mode where the court does too much work under that portion of section one. Sorry, Justice Kassir, just to clarify, are you talking about too much work under proportionality or under minimal impairment? Under minimal impairment, and that, that, that some of your arguments might be best framed as deleterious effects that you find intolerable. Well, in my submission, when we're talking about minimal impairment, you do have to look at impairment on the charter right, which is the same as deleterious effects. When you're assessing deleterious effects, you're looking at the deleterious effects on the individual. How significant is the impairment of their charter right? Here, it's the same thing when you're looking at minimal impairment because you're looking at whether the law impairs those charter rights mo no more than necessary in order to achieve the objective. Here, 
I guess my submissions are almost more of an overbreadth point than they are a final proportionality point because I'm arguing that section 33.1 captures too broad of conduct. It captures too many people. It captures people who don't act in a morally blameworthy manner in consuming an intoxicant. And it captures people who do not foresee that the consumption of a particular intoxicant, even if illicit, could result in the commission of a violent offense. And so because it captures all of those things, and there are, uh, there are alternatives available that would not capture those things, the provision is not minimally impairing. That's my only point. So moving now to final proportionality. The court below advanced several possible salutary effects of this provision. For both Justice Cooler and Justice Slatter, they saw the salutary effects in the vindication of the dignity and self-worth of victims of crime, as well as in encouraging the reporting of intoxication-fueled violence. In my submission, neither of those are salutary effects of this provision. The idea that the vindication of a victim's dignity and self-worth flows from the punishment of an individual who had no awareness that what they were doing was wrong is, with all due respect, a very crude conception of justice. We don't punish children who are under the age of 12. We don't punish those who are not criminally responsible or those who are in a state of automatism simply because their actions result in the impairment of the dignity and self-worth of victims of crime. In my submission, to punish the mentally innocent in contravention of the principles of fundamental justice in order to satisfy some sort of thirst for vengeance in the community, it can never be a salutary aspect of a law. With respect to the idea that this provision encourages Sorry, I'm gonna the reporting- Sorry, I'm gonna have to interrupt you again. It's thirst for vengeance, I, th I think, think that's, what we would call in Quebec an effet de tâche. That's, it's it's a, a bit of a, an overstatement. I mean, we're talking, the, the, your colleagues uh, on the other side speak of the equality interests of women and children. Parliament was forefront of Parliament's mind. We weren't talking about thirst for vengeance. That, that was nowhere to be seen in the debates. Uh, I think you should, you'd be best to frame it in in the language that Parliament used, where Parliament saw salutary effects, don't you think? Yes, and the, my only reference to vengeance simply comes from this court's decision in R and MCA, where this court referred to vengeance as a sentencing principle that punishes people for the harm that they caused without regard to the reason why they did the act. Do you That's mean, where do you mean denunciation? Or do you mean uh, vengeance? It's not quite the same. No, it's not the same, and I'm referring to vengeance as described in MCA, not denunciation. Punishing people for the act alone without reason for their, without regard to the reason why they committed the act. Now, with respect to the idea that this provision encourages the reporting of intoxication-fueled violence, in my submission, this is something for which the Crown actually does need to provide supporting evidence. This comes from this court's decision in KRJ, which is at tab nine of our condensed book. In that case, Justice Karakatsanis required actual proof of the salutary effects of the law, statistical proof, not simply speculation as to the theoretical salutary effects. This is because a rights limitation has to be demonstrably justified, not just theoretically justified. There's no proof that has been adduced by any attorney general at any level of court to support the notion that section 33.1 actually encourages the reporting of intoxication-fueled violence or that its absence would somehow discourage that reporting. As I see, I'm out of time. Thank you very much. Subject to any further questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Anil Kapoor. Yes, thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, 
I want to uh, focus my submissions uh, this morning, subject to any direction from the court, on the relationship between um, an individual's a breach of an individual's Section 7 rights on the one hand, and whether fundamental justice, as a limiter on the other hand, uh, can take into account the interests of other other interests, other community interests. Um, and our submission is, it depends what the nature of the breach is. Where the accused Section 7 breach goes to, as in this case, goes to the contours of criminal liability. Respectfully, the interests of other people in Section 7 have no, have no role to play in Section 7. Where there is a role to play is where we're dealing with procedural rights that accrue to an accused person, such as disclosure, such as the ability to ask certain questions, and I'm thinking now of a, a sexual assault trial, uh, where, th where those expressions of the accused due process rights engage another person's constitutional rights. And we see this most frequently in the right to privacy in the hands of complainants. In that circumstance, this court has balanced the interests at Section 7. But respectfully, when we're considering the contours of criminal liability, that is to say, whether 33-1 does what the Alberta Court of Appeal majority says it does, introduce a different fault standard for personal injury offenses, general intent personal injury offenses, the constitutionality of that cannot be mitigated or traversed or interrogated by reference to someone else's constitutional right under Section 7. Respectfully, the place for those social concerns, those societal concerns, are more properly um, interrogated, as I say, under Section 1 of the Constitution. Section 1 has a built-in architecture that is in its own way, respectful of constitutional rights, and at the same time, flexible for this court to take into account pressing societal concerns. Also, Parliament has the ability, if they wished, didn't in this case, but if they wished, to enact notwithstanding. Well, how does this work? Your position is, and your colleagues, that <clears throat> there's a real risk here that innocent people could get convicted. That's what I understand it and that is contrary to 7, 11D, whatever you want. So how do you frame Section 1 in a way? How do we even get there if really the question that's being asked is, okay, uh, Section 1 allows us to, you know, slip up on the odd innocent person, but that's the price that we sh society should be willing to pay. We'll convict a few innocent people to get uh, a few people who aren't. How does that ever work? Well, it might not ever work. Well, that, in that's other words, the answer. It, in other words, it might be that Parliament cannot fashion uh, a law that is sufficiently tailored to take into account this particular kind of social issue. On the other hand, Parliament might be able to. Parliament may satisfy this court that a redrafted penal negligence offense with a different kind of fault standard is sufficient limitation on constitutional rights, given the pressing and substantial nature of the concern. But respectfully, it ought to come here as a properly mature criminal offense 
that you're able to evaluate against our constitutional norms. And then, of course, under the pressing and substantial concerns that occupied Parliament's time. Yeah, Mr. Kapoor, if you're ready yes. to recognize the pressing of substantial concerns of women and children, would you concede that the accountability under Section 1 provides a means to redress the inequality experienced by women and children in the context of intoxicated gender-based violence? Well, I think to um, borrow from my colleague's submission, uh, much of this is sort of data-driven and the benefit of Parliament assessing this, and we have the benefit of their Hansard debates already, but, but, but in the manner in which you're suggesting, Parliament would turn their mind to these considerations, would provide a record to justify the intrusion on constitutionally protected rights as we ass assert that there is with this kind of fault regime. So there would be a data package that you could look at to evaluate the content of the legislation. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. Carter Martel. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Empowerment Council represents the interests of people with addictions and mental health issues and those who use illegal substances. The Empowerment Council supports the position of the appellant that on a plain reading of section 33.1, the section is unconstitutional. The court below upheld the section because the majority interpreted it in a manner it held to be constitutionally compliant. The respondent and the intervener attorneys general urged this court to do the same by reading the section to impose liability only where the prohibited consequence of self-induced intoxication was objectively foreseeable. In the event this court finds that the section can be interpreted in that manner, the Empowerment Council wishes to make two submissions about what a constitutionally compliant section 33.1 would look like. First, we say there must be objective foreseeability of extreme intoxication causing a loss of conscious control and violent conduct as a result. Second, the determination of whether each element of that threshold is met must be based on a fact-specific assessment of the evidence. It shouldn't be based on presumptions that are rooted in stereotype or misconception about illegal substances and their users. My first point then, the majority of the court below is not crystal clear in articulating what exactly must be objectively foreseeable for section 33.1 to apply. The Empowerment Council submits that the prohibited state is intoxication that renders the person uh, unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior, resulting in a violent act. And this is what must be objectively foreseeable. Uh, if I understand them correctly, this is the interpretation of the section that's urged, uh, argued for by the Attorney General for Manitoba. Regarding the well, evidence sure, Surely that, that, that would just follow that, that if that's what has to be foreseeable, that just follows from the text of sub two. Right, exactly. Right? Voluntarily, or, or sorry, in a, um, renders the person unaware of or incapable of consciously controlling their behavior. Right, exactly. Yeah. Regarding the evidence necessary to meet that threshold, the Empowerment Council urges this court to resist the evidentiary shortcuts uh, applied by the court below and suggested in this court by the Attorney General for Ontario. AG Ontario submits a paragraph 20 of its factum that the threshold should be deemed to be met in any case where the accused admits to using illegal drugs. 
In our submission, the legal status of a substance is not a reliable barometer, either of the risk of extreme intoxication or the risk of violence. Some illicit substances are associated with loss of conscious control and violence, but others are not commonly associated with any such effect. Opioids, for example, present a danger to the user, but there's no evidence before this court to associate them with violence to other persons. The Parliament's decision to criminalize a substance says nothing about the risk that substance creates to other persons. Further, we urge this court not to endorse the view that people who use illegal substances are deserving of condemnation and denunciation, as suggested by the majority judgment of the court below. Many users of illegal substances do so responsibly, just as do users of lawful substances. They consume them in moderate amounts or they take reasonable precautions uh, to avoid any risk of harm. Many of those who use illegal substances are among the most marginalized and vulnerable in society. Many are themselves survivors of violence or other trauma. So statements that suggest that they are reckless or presumptively morally blameworthy perpetuate discrimination and stigma. The risk of extreme intoxication in our submission must be established by evidence, having regard to the known effects of the drug, the manner and quantity in which it was consumed. Finally, a foreseeable risk of extreme intoxication does not always or necessarily entail a foreseeable risk of violence. In some cases, for some substances, it will. But uh, as the AG for Manitoba submits in its factum, there will also be cases where a reasonable person would not foresee a likelihood of violence arising from their intoxication because the person has taken reasonable precautions to avoid that outcome. In our submission, the risk of violence cannot be deemed to exist, but must be established on the evidence. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Lindsay Davio. Yes, good morning. Uh, on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association uh, for Ontario, uh, I hope to make two submissions to the court. Uh, the first is that Section 33.1's purpose is not pressing and substantial. And I apologize both uh, with respect to the Section 1 analysis. Uh, the CLA submits that properly construed using the interpretive framework outlined by this court, Parliament's purpose in enacting Section 33.1 uh, was to ensure intoxicated offenders were held accountable, even when they lacked voluntariness or the minimum requisite degree of, of mental fault. And by virtue of this court's decision in Davio, that purpose was an unconstitutional one, and is neither pressing nor, substan uh, nor substantial as contemplated within Section 1 of the Charter. And second, the CLA uh, will submit that Section 33.1 cannot be saved under Section 1 of the Charter, as the provision does not minimally impair. Uh, this court has uh, repeatedly affirmed that correctly identifying uh, and infringing provisions objectives is critical to the analysis. Uh, the CLA's position uh, slightly differs from that of the appellant in that while uh, the CLA submits that there is uh, a protective uh, voice in the preamble and in the parliamentary discussions surrounding the enactment of Section 33.1, uh, using the framework developed by this court in RGR McDonald, uh, that is to examine the scope of what a legislature sought to regulate, while remaining focused on the objective of the infringing measure, 
since it's the infringing measure and nothing else, which is sought to be justified, lays bare that Section 33.1's narrow purpose is accountability. Uh, and in that regard, I agree with uh, my friend's submissions and certainly with uh, Justice Pichaco's uh, reasons in the Ontario Court of Appeals decision of Sullivan and Chan that an accountability purpose uh, can never justify uh, an infringement uh, of the charter principles. Ms. Davio, what, what, how do you answer Justice Kular's criticism of Justice Pachaco's um, analysis of accountability where she says it's a circular argument that he makes and that if accepted at face value, it would mean any resulting breach of Section 7 could never be a purpose and would always be taken out of the Section uh, 1 analysis on that basis. Yeah, certainly. Uh, with respect, Justice Kular held that the um, Justice Kular fails to recognize that legislation can similarly have both charter, charter infringing effects and charter infringing aims. In respect of this particular instance, Section 33.1 uh, is holding uh, automatons uh, accountable as an unconstitutional effect, also doesn't enclose it being, uh, foreclose it being an unconstitutional aim. My respectful submission is uh, both the aim and the effect of the legislation is unconstitutional uh, and uh, isn't circular in that regard. So my respectful submission is Justice Picaccio's reasoning on that point should be preferred. I'm trying to understand how an aim can be unconstitutional. I mean, we strike down provisions of legislation. We strike down laws under Section 52. We don't strike down aims. Well, with respect, with respect to, uh, this goes back to the idea of being accountability being the aim of the legislation. If this court accepts that's the purpose, uh, then uh, that's the purpose of all, uh, all offenses under the criminal code. Uh, and, and my respectful submission is, is this is premised on the idea that while there is a protective purpose uh, inherent in the preamble, my respectful submission is for a number of reasons that protective purpose uh, is not borne out in what the actual section does. So my respectful submission is the aim of, of accountability uh, is unconstitutional and can be an unconstitutional aim in that regard. And that's, and again, I apologize, that's because my respectful submission is the protective purpose is not uh, is not borne out in this section. Uh, and to that extent, I disagree with my friend on that point. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Deborah Alford. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. In an effort uh, not to repeat too much what was said in the related case of Regina and Sullivan and Chan that this court heard uh, approximately one month ago, we will make the following submissions. Firstly, the court below in our respectful submission did not err in finding that section 33.1 was not constitutional. 
or was constitutional. I, my apologies. In our submission, the section does not breach Section 7 or 11D of the Charter. However, if this court finds otherwise, then in our respectful submission, the uh, section can be upheld under Section 1 as a reasonable limit demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. The respondent will make three points on the interpretation of the elements of Section 33.1 because the description of the elements and the way in which they interact one with the other anchors our constitutional arguments and with respect anchors the constitutional finding of the court below of Justices Slatter and Hughes. We will discuss the, that moral blameworthiness of this behavior is a sound idea and it is caught by this section. We will focus on what the phrase self-induced intoxication has been juridically held to include, namely a voluntariness component as well as a mens rea component that one has to objectively foresee a risk of intoxication. And thirdly, the standard of care as described by Justice Slatter in the court below as the mens rea selected by Parliament is the marked departure from acceptable standards of conduct when an accused voluntarily engages an objectively foreseeable risk of harm entering into a danger zone, if, if you will, a zone of danger, a zone of harm to others. And finally, if time permits, we will discuss the elements of Section 1 of the Charter. And as this court is well aware, there is a significant divide between the Ontario Court of Appeal in Sullivan and Chan and the Alberta Court of Appeal in this case as to what the objectives of this legislation are. We respectfully submit that the unanimous decision of the Alberta Court of Appeal in that regard be preferred to the approach provided in Sullivan and Chan by the Ontario Court of Appeal. The issue of moral blameworthiness has uh, underpinned various scholarly articles and, of course, the case law in this area for decades, it seems. And it is still a central concern we respectfully submit. During the various consultations and the evidence that Parliament heard well Bill C-72, which created Section 33.1, were underway, various opinions as to moral blameworthiness behavior were expressed. And I would like to focus in on one observation that was made in April of 1995 by the law professor Patrick Healy. He had written a number of academic articles on this area and in fact had been referenced by this court in Davio. And he continued to write uh, during the consultation 
and after Section 33.1 um, was what was passed. But during the hearings, he had this to say, and he, he opined that the bill was constitutional because he said that Parliament has been presented with a proposal that says that people who commit harmful acts, acts of personal violence while they are in a voluntary state of severe intoxication are not morally innocent because harmful wrongdoing done in that state nevertheless shows a wrongful or morally guilty form of behavior. He went on to say that the bill uh, indicates that people who commit harmful acts in that voluntary state of intoxication are nevertheless guilty or wrongful in what they do precisely because they have induced that state of incapacity and irresponsibility. And so that's what and you those, say section 33 sorry. and so that's what you say section 33.1 does. That's I'm what sorry, you say explain. section 33.1 does. That it that it uh, what what you just said that that, that, that the gravamen of, of the the gravamen of the moral failure here, or in the language of the section, the gravamen of the marked departure from the standard of care is the self-induced intoxication, right? Yes, okay. that is what we say. Let's not kid ourselves. Justice you watched Brown. the last hearing. You saw my oh, questioning of, yes. of, of um, you heard my questioning of counsel. So. I'm not going to read sub two again. No. Um, but you know my concern that when you yes. read when you read it, it makes plain that <clears throat> the marked departure from the standard of care arises where the person, while in that state of self-induced intoxication interferes or threatens to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person. In other words, the gravamen of the marked departure is the interference on a plain reading of the statute. Right. Now, I've, you know, we've been urged variously to read things in, to, to don't read things in, but to squint uh, when we read it. Um, I know you're urging us in your factum to read it holistically. We've been urged to focus less on the text and more on the preamble. And I'm wondering why we just can't read the statute and understand the gravamen of the marked departure being precisely what it says. Well, and in fact, uh, Justice Brown, I respectfully submit that you can when you do take all of the various sections, one, two, and three of section 33.1. And I would like to point out the uh, subsection one and the last phrase in that particular section. Uh, there's the, the section speaks, of course, of self-induced intoxication, which of course has, has a certain definition in and of itself that you must be voluntarily, you must voluntarily uh, take an intoxicant that you know or could know 
has an intoxicating effect. Then the section actually says in the last phrase, where the accused departed markedly from the standard of care as described in subsection two. With respect, we say that that particular phrase qualifies, of course, the act of self-induced intoxication. It makes direct reference to the description in subparagraph two. And that, uh, as Justice Slatter said, in the Brown decision, it, it can be and it is assessed at the time of intoxication. And then, of course, as one progresses, uh, the, the intoxication may or may not manifest itself in an act of violence. And, of course, in this case, we do have it manifesting itself in an act of violence. So with respect, it is our submission um, based on our comments in our factum and, of course, the hearing of Sullivan and Chan and all of the other various writings that have been done on this subject from the Attorney Generals, that uh, that is the gravamen, because otherwise it wouldn't make uh, much sense. Maybe, maybe I've, I have, you'll explain it better to me, but I, when I read your factum, I'm, I'm not sure if you're arguing that 33.1 creates a, a predicate offense, that there's an underlying unlawful act of extreme intoxication, and the harm that results is what is the source of, when that all comes together, that's the source of liability. Or is it a penal negligence offense, where foreseeability of harm or maybe even foreseeability of the violent act itself is somehow taken into account. Which, which one is it of those two? It is uh, the latter. So, so, so if it's the latter, it's foreseeability of what? Is it, is it harm writ large? Did you make no distinction between the types of harm that it might be? And what about the fact that the offense itself, the person's on the hook for an offense is, doesn't seem to be within the range of what's objectively foreseeable. Well, the, uh, if, if one gets into this state that we're talking about, this, this state um, of, of extreme self-intoxication. Of course, we must remember that the actual extent of that state does not have to be foreseen. Um, and, and, and how could somebody foresee that it would be legally defined as automatism, for example? So the, the, uh, the degree of intoxication required is not just, if I can use the phrase, intoxication simpliciter. Uh, it's not the mild form of intoxication that is stage one in, in the daily case. It's not stage two of the daily case. It's stage three of the daily case and beyond. And that by someone such as Mr. Brown conducting himself in the fashion in which he did can get into that state that, that it is reasonably foreseeable that that is a zone of danger, that that is a zone of harm that uh, that the section says 
is criminal. So what do we do then with Justice LaBelle's reasons for the court in Bouchard-Lebrun, where he addressed foreseeability and said, no distinction based on the seriousness of the effects of self-induced intoxication is drawn in this provision. Well, with respect, um, Justice Brown, of course, the provisions of Bouchard-Lebrun, those three paragraphs from which that, uh, that phrase comes from, was more or less the extent of the uh, interpretation in that case. And the degrees of intoxication we submit must be overlaid on the overall analysis. I don't understand what that so, means. So what I'm attempting to say is that the degree does matter because this section does not... Well, maybe it does, I'm it, just, but my question is, what do we do with Bouchard-Lebrun? Let's say that I well, agree with you. What do I do? I think you ex can expand upon that. You can take Justice LaBelle's three main paragraphs, in addition to his uh, comment, I believe, at section 35, paragraph 35, that Davio was not rewritten, or th that, that section 33.1 was not simply a codification of the dissent in the Davio decision. You can take all of those paragraphs that are in well, he said, he, he said, he said, he said, 33.1 applies where the accused is intoxicated, where the intoxication was self-induced, and where the accused departed from the standard of reasonable care to be expected, not by the way to become self-intoxicating, self but by interfering or threatening to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person. And then he goes on to say, no distinction based on, on the seriousness of the effects is drawn in these provisions. How do I expand on that to say precisely the opposite? Well, in, you go to what he said in paragraph two, and you go, which is the self-induced intoxication point. And rec recognize that in using that term, that phrase, self-induced intoxication, that that is a well-known, a well-developed phrase in our law. And it, it goes back to 1962 in this court's decision in King, where the court said the voluntary consumption of alcohol or drug which the accused knew or had reasonable grounds for believing might cause him to be impaired. And then there's been various iterations of that uh, through, for example, the Vicberg case, which... But, but that's, just, that's just foreseeability. First of all, he doesn't incorporate that in Section 33.1, but that's just foreseeability of intoxication. There's no suggestion here that, that those cases are talking about the foreseeability of automatism. And in the end, he doesn't distinguish between the effects anyways. I, I, you've got limited time, but, but um, I just want to signal to you I'm... I'm not convinced so far. Certainly, and uh, just just to finish that particular area off, of, of course, uh, Justice Brown, there was much discussion about this at the Sullivan and Chan hearing, and um, 
of course, it may be presumptuous of me to uh, expect, but I expect that this court will be rendering a decision in, in Sullivan and Chan and in Brown um, at, at the same time. So we, of course, adopt what was said in that particular case in our submissions to you today as well. May I bring you back to one of the differences, though, between the case that's in front of us today? And that is we have a, the same or singular act of self-induced intoxication of Mr. Brown, both drinking and taking uh, mushrooms. Um, and when you're speaking about moral innocence, as I would understand it, if Section 33 sub 1 is constitutional, um, and we look at uh, Justice Holland's decision, she found, based on expert evidence of Dr. Dalby and Yarama, that there was, in fact, involuntariness here, that he was intoxicated to the, po to the point of automatism. So he, he would not be convicted of the property-based offenses of breaking and entering, and he would be convicted of the aggravated assault. And that, that is a stark um, kind of conclusion in terms of the effects of Section 33.1, because really it's the same act of self-induced intoxication. How can it be morally innocent in one context for one set of offenses and, and morally culpable because there's a bodily integrity aspect of the other offenses. Doesn't that cut against some of what you're claiming? Well, uh, with respect, Justice Martin, I would suggest no, because Parliament did make that distinction. They found that uh, in Section 33.1, the, the, the restriction, of course, to general intent crimes that involve the bodily integrity of others. And if so, again, the the, the uh, I would just like to make a, a brief point as well on the break and enter aspect of this case. In this particular case, the Court of Appeals decision reflects that the conviction is for aggravated assault. However, the formal judgment in this case is for break and enter and commit aggravated assault because the uh, break and enter and commit carries with it the intent of the underlying offense. And so we, we in our formal judgment that is before you, the conviction is actually for break and enter and commit aggravated assault with uh, the break and enter and commit having a general intent component, which rather than the, the uh, specific intent component for break and enter uh, and with intent to commit. But um, back to this concept of moral blameworthiness, I mean, uh, it just in our respectful submission in someone such as Mr. Brown, he, he, he attends this house, as my learned friend Mr. Fagan has said, that this is in the evidence, of course. He's at this party, there's other people, and they proceed to drink 
in his estimation, I believe it was uh, about 14 ounces, 12 to 14 ounces of alcohol. And then this baggie of uh, magic mushrooms that happened to be on the kitchen counter. And there's no evidence as to what quantity he took. He says that he uh, just began snacking on it indiscriminately throughout the evening. And with respect, we suggest that the imbibing of not only um, of an illegal substance, a substance that is controlled under the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, adds an element to the moral blameworthiness of, of, of his particular um, of his particular behavior on the night in question. And to continue doing so in, in this environment, we suggest is is exactly what Section 33.1 was intended by Parliament to avoid. And with respect, uh, we suggest that Mr. Fagan's comments about Mr. Brown not having the objective foreseeability, if that is held to be the test, uh, it just is not is not carried out by the evidence. It's not shown in the evidentiary record. He knew this was an illegal substance. He testified in cross-examination that he knew it was a hallucinogenic. Uh, he didn't know how much he took of it. A Perhaps a reasonable, safe way of doing this would be at a safe injection site. Uh, or perhaps a better example is if the drug is being administered by a professional who is microdosing the person, perhaps then the moral blameworthiness that we suggest is there would not apply because safeguards are being taken. And just to add to the facts uh, a scenario here, what if, what if Mr. Brown was... Uh, in his house with his intimate partner, did this and ended up hurting or killing his intimate partner. The, the place in which it happens can turn from a safe place into a place of, uh, of profound agony by either a, an assault or a death. And, and that, of course, we saw in the, in the Chan facts. So for all of those reasons, that is why we maintain that this is morally blameworthy behavior to get yourself into a course of conduct that can lead you to become a weapon with your own body. Uh, briefly, if... Wait, can, if I, can I ask... If I, excuse me, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Justice Slatter speaks of... Uh, a dangerous drug, as opposed to some other intoxicant, is that is your is he right on that? Well, of course, um, Mr. Justice, if, so, if if you look at the various schedules that are attached to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different drugs out there with uh, various components or. Um, I mean, 
and they're all controlled. Those are all regulated. But we suggest that if someone is embarking upon a course of conduct with alcohol and prescription drugs, for example, the combination of the two, that that can create the type of danger that this section is intended to foreclose upon. Uh, so, of course, each case is fact-specific. Each drug is fact-specific. And uh, in, in the trials that would be undertaken, I would suggest that the court would need to be aware of some of the elements of, of, each, of each of the drugs. Um, and of course, thus the requirement for expert evidence to be, to be done. So it's not simply the label of the drug as an illegal drug or a dangerous drug that is the defining feature here, Mr. Justice, in our respectful submission. It can be the combination or the misuse, um, you know, the reckless disregard for what um, perhaps one's prescription pamphlet has to say, as an example. The, the uh, ingestion of significant quantities of alcohol along with prescription drugs in in um, violation of what the doctor's orders are or the pharmacist's orders are. On the Section 1 analysis, uh, we would respectfully submit that protection and accountability are both the pressing and substantial objectives of this legislation that that is the way in which the equality rights of everyone are uh, balanced, that women and children who are historically victims of self-induced intoxicant violence by perpetrators are protected, and there must be an accountability aspect to this. In reference to the proof, we suggest that it is difficult to prove a negative, um, a deterrence. How does one actually statistically prove that? So with respect, we suggest that we, in, in, in the justification stage, do not need to prove to a, uh, on, on, on actual evidence, a negative, a deterrence effect. We suggest that by criminalizing this behavior, that there is a deterrent effect, that people will be careful, that people will know when to stop. I see that my time is drawing near and subject to uh, any further questions. Those are our respectful submissions. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Mr. Morris. Yes, thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. Good morning. Canada intervenes in this appeal, as it did in Sullivan Chan, to address the charter issues raised in respect to the constitutional validity of Section 33.1. We address Section 1 in both our factors, but subject to your questions, I'll leave those submissions with you and restrict myself today to the interpretive issues related to the scope of Section 33.1. 
and at the risk of reliving Groundhog Day, I'll try not to repeat what I said in the Sullivan Chan matter. The appellant argues here that Section 33.1 eliminates the need for voluntariness or mens rea and captures within its scope the consumption of any substances that may result in intoxication. That interpretation in our submission is simply wrong. It's our submission that the provision must be read instead as being restricted to self-induced intoxication where it is foreseeable at the time of intoxication that automatism could result and only where violence actually ensues and an accused must be found to have violated the marked departure standard of conduct. This interpretation gives the meaning the entirety of the section is consistent with the common law that was known to Parliament when it was passed and conforms with this court's interpretation of analogous provisions. I'll focus today on why the narrow textual interpretation offered by the appellant and uh, also accepted by the majority in Sullivan Chan must be rejected as it correctly was by the court below. First, it's illogical. The appellant's narrow textual interpretation requires to ignore the use of the term marked departure and is thereby criminally at fault to accept that Parliament acted in defiance of well-accepted principles of the common law by applying a standard of conduct to non-rational actions that can't be found blameworthy. Second, it, has, it requires you to ignore a consistent decades-long practice of this court exercising the judicial function of giving further provision to the elements of actus reus and in particular mens rea within the text of criminal provisions. There is no reason to abandon that role in this one singular context and ample common law guidance on how these elements should be interpreted here. Turning to my first submission, 33.1 must be read in a way that gives meaning to all the terms and the provisions, including the phrase, and is thereby criminally at fault, which refers back to a marked departure from the reasonable standard of care. These terms only have meaning if applied to the actions of a rational actor. They're meaningless if applied directly to a non-rational actor committing an act of violence in a state of automatism. Something can't be negligent and involuntary at the, at the same time. And Parliament's law should not be interpreted to produce criminal fault in the absence of voluntary actions by a rational actor. The primary and long-standing presumption of the criminal law is that its purpose is only to capture blameworthy behavior of rational actors. Justice Tashro made that point way back in 1962 in the King case when he said that criminal laws uh, in relation in, in the context of impaired driving, that it should not be lightly presumed that Parliament was either ignorant of the proposition that for the criminal law to punish, there must be a willpower to do an act. It can't be lightly presumed Parliament was ignorant of that fundamental proposition or chose to disregard it entirely. Parliament was aware when Section 33 was enacted that a marked departure concept ensures that only voluntary actions done by a person with capacity to comply with the law that fell well outside of expected societal norms are captured. Now, intoxicated violence has always posed unique problems for Parliament and courts, as it has a dual exculpatory and blameworthy aspect. But the common law has provided ample guidance to navigate this dilemma through jurisprudence interpreting the term self-induced to exclude liability in the case of voluntary intoxication. And contrary to the appellant's submission, a finding of marked departure does not require a scientific finding on the exact factual causations associated with various intoxicants. That conflates the actus reus question of whether the consumption of a particular intoxicant in a particular case actually caused the loss of awareness or capacity with the mens rea question of whether an accused in a particular circumstance significantly departed from the expected behavior of a reasonable person in regard to the taking of a mind-altering drug. 
Now, a determination of an objective foreseeability and a marked departure will depend on the circumstances and facts in any given case. Some cases will be easy to determine. An individual knowingly takes crystal meth or PCP or some street drug, drug they weren't aware of, or took a dangerous combination of mind-altering drugs for recreational purposes. Or on the other side, a person um, uh, who has completely unforeseeable reaction to a prescribed medicine or takes a single glass of wine. That is, a, it's absolutely, those will be the easy cases in respect of assessing um, a marked departure. And some cases will be harder. Some will turn on the evidence and individual circumstances that cannot be precisely defined in advance and are always properly left to the trier of fact. Now, contrary to appellant submissions, not every circumstance involving the ingestion of intoxicant, a behavior Canadians engage in social settings every day, are uh, captured by Section 33.1. A marked departure can only be found where a reasonable person in all the circumstances assessed by a trier fact would know or ought to know that the ingestion would create a realistic risk of being rendered an automaton. Is that, how, is, that the, is that the basis on which the Attorney General of Canada has conducted prosecutions in this area? As it, in other words, it has, has, have, has the Attorney General urged courts that they um, may not convict unless a foreseeability standard, as you've just described, was met on the evidence? Um, Justice Brown, that's a good question, although I, I'm going to dodge it somewhat in the sense that the Attorney General of Canada isn't often the one that carries out prosecutions except in the North and other uh, contexts. But nevertheless, uh, to, to answer that question, I can't speak in the past to exactly how the provision was interpreted. We know it got a particular interpretation by this court in Bouchard-Lebrun, and obviously this particular question that's before you with respect to the purposive issue of how we interpret this consistent with the charter in light of all the objectives i think is is something that's only becoming coming before this court now um so to the extent that there may have been prosecuted i'm not denying there may have been past instances where a different interpretation of section 33.1 uh, was taken and prosecuted upon i'm not here to say that at all that may well have taken place what i'm saying is properly interpreted now seized with the matter in respect of how it's currently been framed here and in sullivan chan this is the correct purposive interpretation which we're suggesting this court should adopt uh, in, in, in this case, but again, I can't, I can't speak to the possibility that there may have been a prosecution based on a different theory of the case. Turning to my second submission, there's no reason for this court to abandon its decade-long judicial function of purposively interpreting criminal provisions in a manner that gives meaning to both actus reus and mens rea elements. And I give multiple examples uh, of this in our, in our, in our factum. I'm not, I'll, I'll leave them to you. Uh, they're generally set out uh, between paragraphs 9 and 11, fraud, care and control of a motor vehicle while impaired, failure to comply with our cognizance that had no mens rea defined within the section at all, dangerous driving, etc. But I want to turn to one that's particularly instructive here, which is impaired driving, given the similarities in structure to subsection 2. When this court considered that offense in King of Penno, that provision read, everyone who, while his ability to drive a motor vehicle is impaired by alcohol or drug, drives a motor vehicle or has a care control of a motor vehicle, whether it is in motion or not, is guilty. 
Now, the text of the provision did not explicitly attach any mental fault to a decision to voluntarily become intoxicated, yet despite this, the court way back in 1962 in King interpreted as requiring that the impaired condition which the section prohibits be brought about by some conscious act of the will or, or intention. This was so notwithstanding the fact that the text of the subordinate clause, while his ability to drive is impaired, if given a purely literal reading, which is what the appellant's urging here, would have been fulfilled in the absence of a decision to voluntarily into intoxicate. That wasn't referenced within the text at all. So I'd submit what we're suggesting to this court is not a reading in, in in any radical fashion at all. It's to interpret within the basic presumptions of the criminal law with existing common law principles at your disposal, what those terms mean to give it meaning in a way that actually uh, is consistent with the legislative objectives are here. Mr. Morris, Mr. Morris, in, in respect of that comparison, what about the fact that the, the gravamen of the offense under 33-1 is the violent act itself and not getting behind the wheel of a car when you're impaired? Well, I would submit that, uh, Justice Kassir, with respect to that question, the gravamen of the offense here is the intoxication leading to the creation of the state of automatism. It's the state of automatism that is the danger uh, that the, the, this provision seeks to address. It's, it's as Justice Muldaver said in the Sullivan Chan hearing, it's putting, it's arming someone with a loaded gun uh, in, in, in public. That's the danger. So the, the, the liability, the mode of liability was altered here to, to change the gravamen of the offense to the creation of the state of automatism. That's what has to be objectively foreseeable to create the danger that there might be an act of violence that, that would happen. But the actual foreseeability doesn't have to extend from the individual's perspective to, to uh, an act of violence. There's, there's an intervening act, which is automatism, which prevents that direct connection here. And again, we go back to the unique nature of, of, of uh, intoxicated violence and having that blameworthy uh, aspect as well as the exculpatory act. Well, I'll have aspect. to think about That's what how I got at the problem here by using the 33.1 to, to, to change the gravamen uh, to the, the intoxication <laughs> leading to the creation of the danger. I'll, I'll have to think about whether that's indeed the offense that we have before us in 33.1, but it does sound to me like you, you're not taking the same position as the Crown in this position as to, in this respect as to the nature of the, the offense, whether it's a, a predicate offense the underlying unlawful act of extreme intoxication and the harm resulting is just something that follows. We heard earlier that your colleague took, takes a view that it's a penal negligence offense. I don't know that there's any great difference in, in that respect. Um, it, it is a penal negligence offense, but there has to be an objective foreseeability, which we say is the risk of automatism, that the person know or ought to have known the substance was an intoxicant, ought to have known the consumption of that would create a realistic risk of, of automatism, and the accused must have departed markedly from the standard of care that a reasonable person in the circumstances would have taken to avoid that risk. So right. under our interpretation of this provision, the commission of the violence at the end is, is the consequence that happens as a result of the gravamen of the fault, which is the, the, the decision to take an intoxicant which had the realistic risk 
uh, of creating a state of automatism, leading ultimately to the violence. So yes, Parliament was concerned with the ultimate violence, of course. That's the underlying objective. But in order to get to it in the case of automatistic violence, self-induced automatistic violence, it had to it had to move the gravamen to the decision to intoxicate in the first place. And then the commission of the violence itself then becomes a consequence of that. It doesn't have to be foreseeable per se. Under our interpretation, that doesn't make sense because there's an intervening event of the Thank you very much. Itself, I'm, sorry I'm sorry to so interrupt. In to get it I'm sorry to interrupt. Your time is up. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much. Mr. Perlin. Good afternoon, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. I'd just like to respond to a few questions that have arisen in this hearing and in the Sullivan hearing. First, to Justice Kassir's point or question to my friend just a moment ago about uh, what the mode of liability is here. In our submission, this is a predicate act offense where the predicate act is one of penal negligence. And in Crichton, the, uh, the court explained it page 59 that an offense uh, can be predicated on the predicate act of penal negligence. Second, Justice Kassir, you asked about um, whether the marked departure standard attaches to some danger at, at large. What, what does it need to attach to? And in, in my submission, um, the clearest answer to this question comes from uh, this court's decision in Neglick. You can look at pages 143 to 144. The marked departure standard attaches not to harm writ large, but to a specific harm identified in the actus reus. So um, in this regard, we agree with the Empowerment Council that, that you have to look to the text of the provision. Uh, section 33.12 provides um, for fault in relation to self-induced intoxication. That renders the person unaware of or whoa, incapable whoa, whoa, of consciously whoa, whoa, controlling whoa, their behavior. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You said your submission is that the fault is in respect of self-induced intoxication? That's correct. Well, let's read it. Let's read it together. For the purposes of this section, a person departs markedly from the standard of reasonable care generally recognized in Canadian society and is thereby criminally at fault where the person, while in a state of self-induced intoxication that renders them incapable of controlling their behavior, voluntarily or involuntarily threatens to interfere with the bodily integrity. So the fault arises while the person is already intoxicated, self-induced. But that's, right, the, the self-inducement precedes fault, which coincides with the interference with bodily integrity of another person. We disagree with that interpretation. That's and, not an interpretation. A, I'm reading it. Well, I, at, in my submission, the fault crystallizes at the point that the violence occurs. And, and, we're, and, 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 and so what do you point to in the text to support that? Well, in, in your interpretation, Justice Brown, or your reading of the, the provision, self-induced intoxication is a precondition. Well, but, uh, hang on. It's not a matter of my reading it. I read it. And it says, where the person, while in a state of self-induced intoxication... Sorry, is there something that I should be reading into the word while that... that temporally removes it from my apparently impoverished understanding of this English language word? I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. Uh, I am suggesting that this is a precondition to criminal fault under section 33.12. It's uh, something that is an essential precondition. You can't have liability. And where in, the text, where in the text do you rely on for that? 
that the words exist in the Actus Reis articulated in section 33.12. You can't have, you can't just read out the I'm not the reading out the words. I'm putting them in their proper order, I think. But you tell me how I've, how I've improperly mixed up the order with well, reference let, to the text me, of the section. Let me give you my best response to this question. Okay. None first is that, the first is that the, the text of the provision is obviously important, but a purposive interpretation is essential. Oh, here we go. Legal terms must be given their legal meaning. I, I have to stop and, you there, Ben. You can, you, can, you can reply to me as well as to Justice Brown. Statutes are not to be read as a sort of gestalt, a sort of an overall impression of everything that you see in front of you. And from the gestalt of reading this, I, I arrive at some meaning. I mean, that's nonsense. That's just making it up as you go along and inviting the court to, 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 to put interpretations that are not supported by the text. It's a fair question put by my colleague. Upon what portion of the text do you rely for your interpretation? And what I'm hearing in response is, don't look at the text in its particulars, just give it a meaning when you read it overall. And, and that's just an invitation to loose thinking. Well, Justice Rowe, in my submission, the fact that the text includes those terms, uh, a requirement of self-induced intoxication that renders the person unaware of, etc. That is language which is capable of bearing uh, a mental element. No other element of the offense under the form of liability in 33.12 is capable of bearing a construction in which a marked departure standard would attach. There is a, a general rule that every element of the offense is uh, presumptively interpreted to have a mental element unless there's clear contrary intent. And the fact that the phrase is offset by commas and starts with the word, wow, in my submission, can't be read as in, evincing a clear, unequivocal parliamentary intent to have no mental element attached to that element. When, um, and, and in addition, you have the preamble of the provision which speaks to fault based on self-induced intoxication. In addition, you have Bouchard-Lebrun, which um, interpreted the, the provision as having uh, two separate elements, one being the intoxicated state, and two being the fact that the intoxicated state was self-induced. So in, in my submission, that's don't, what... Don't forget the third. Room. Don't forget the third, that the accused departed from the standard of reasonable care to be expected by interfering or threatening to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person, not by becoming um, intoxicated. So, Justice Brown, I don't, I don't disagree with... Uh, with what Bouchard-Lebrun says. I'll just indicate that in Bouchard-Lebrun, the issue was section 16 of the criminal code. Uh, to my knowledge, section 33.1 wasn't even the subject of, uh, of written argument in this court. So this we should is, ignore uh, it. If this element is capable of bearing a mental element, if this element of self-inducement is capable of bearing a mental element, in my submission, the provision is one of objective fault, given the clear indications in the text of the provision. And Sorry, where are these clear indications the again? Is Sorry, where are these clear indications again? Of objective fault? Yeah. Uh, the words departs markedly from the standard of reasonable care, or in the preamble, um, talking about a standard of reasonable care. Okay. And, section 33.1, sub 1. And, and we don't care that subsection 2 links that departure 
to the interference or threat to interfere with bodily integrity, but of course that's just my reading. Um, I, I, I would submit, Justice Brown, that there are really three questions in the statutory interpretation um, flowing from this court's jurisprudence. The first is whether the act of self-induced intoxication has any mental, mental element whatsoever. And um, there's a strong presumption that criminal provisions have some fault requirement. Um, the second question is, uh, isn't to what element does, sorry, isn't sub one designed to remove to rebut that presumption? No, in my submission, sub one is designed to indicate that the Davio defense does not operate when the mode of fault proven in subsection two is uh, is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, that's uh, that's my reading of the of the provision. But um, this court has long held that if a provision has an objective fault requirement, that the objective standard that applies is the marked departure standard. That standard cannot logically attach to the act of violence because as, uh, as Mr. Morris indicated, at the time of the act of violence, the person is effectively an automaton. So that person cannot foresee the consequences of their action. It's, it's illogical and imputes to Parliament uh, a lack of understanding of the operation of the marked departure standard to say that the act of violence is what must be proven on a marked departure standard. In my submission, the only element in the text of the provision capable of actually bearing a marked departure, as, uh, as that legal term has been understood and defined by this court, is the act of self-induced intoxication. And I, I just want to reiterate, if you do accept that there is a um, mental element in 33.12, and if you do accept that the mental element is objective, it must be read as a marked departure, and I'd, uh, I'd rely on Finley for that, for that point. Um, Justice Brown, you, you had asked a question about the passage in Bouchard-Lebrun about no threshold of intoxication, et cetera. Um, I've responded to that question um, from Justice Cote in the Sullivan hearing, and I just refer you to my response on that point. And I see I'm, I'm just running out of time. If I may just have uh, 30 seconds to, to just one final point, Chief Justice. Wait, yeah, go ahead, 30 seconds. Thank you, thank you, sir. So I'd just like to finally indicate that um, there's been some suggestion in, in uh, particularly in the Court of Appeal for Ontario, that uh, Section 33.1 is unconstitutional because it involves substitution. I'd just like to indicate that um, the principle against substitution has never, to all our knowledge, been used by this court to prevent Parliament from defining new ways of committing offences. And if you look at uh, footnote 36 of our uh, factum in this case, you'll see several examples involving a provision uh, that expressly or implicitly deems an essential element to be proven by some other fact. Self, uh, Section 33.1 doesn't say that self-induced intoxication proves intent to commit a general intent offense. It assumes that you did not intend to commit the offense and says that uh, articulates a different mode of liability. Davio and my su submission should not be read as creating any principle of fundamental justice that forecloses or precludes what Parliament has done here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Amy Cutler. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm happy to discuss any aspect of our written submissions. 
but with the court's permission, I hope to focus in particular on the last argument in our factum. Assuming that some kind of negligence-based response to the dangers posed by intoxicated violence is acceptable, does Section 1 require Parliament to create an offense of criminal intoxication, or is the general approach taken in Section 33.1 okay, whatever the court makes of the particular wording uh, of the section as written? This is essentially the appellant's position. There's nothing wrong with objective foreseeability per se as a basis for criminal liability, but allowing conviction for the substantive offense conflates the negligent act with the consequence, and that's what creates a substitution problem and an 11D problem and so on. And I have a few points to make on that. The first one is, Parliament wasn't acting out of the blue. It was following one of the options suggested by the Law Reform Commission, and you'll recall that a minority of the commissioners said, we don't love the idea of uh, criminal intoxication. What we instead think you should do is allow conviction for any offense, any substantive offense that be com can be committed by negligence and treat intoxication as the negligent act that justifies liability for it. And in fact, they went so far as to specifically say, in order to ensure conviction for some offenses that might be missed, that might fall through the cracks, it will be necessary to add negligence as a possible level of culpability for those offenses. And that's exactly what Section 33.1 does. It allows the offenses covered by Section 33.1 sub 3 to be committed via negligence, and it treats extreme intoxication as the negligent act that justifies conviction where it meets the fault threshold of Section 33.1 sub 2. Now, could Parliament add negligence uh, to these offenses? Your decisions in Viancourt and Martineau suggest yes. Very few offenses require a specific level of fault as a constitutional matter. Mostly, this is a decision that's left to Parliament, and I'll get to why in just a minute. But I'll just note, Parliament didn't expand the offenses covered by 33.13 to say it be, uh, that they could be committed by negligence in all circumstances. They restricted it to the single situation contemplated by 33.12. So surely, if they could make these offenses broadly committable by negligence, surely they could do so in this narrow, circumscribed way. Now, why does Parliament enjoy so much flexibility in terms of setting levels of culpability? It's because we're confident that the system can accommodate gradations of fault and the blameworthiness of a particular accused. This is why we don't have a separate offense for intentional sexual sexual assault and another one for reckless sexual assault and another one for willfully blind sexual assault because we trust that we can adjust and we can treat the accused appropriately in the circumstances of the particular case. Justice Moldaver, this was your point during the Sullivan hearing. We may not be used to seeing these offenses prosecuted by way of negligence, but so what? It doesn't change the responsibilities of the participants involved. An accused prosecuted for negligent commission of one of these offenses will not be treated as if he or she had committed it intentionally. There is no risk of disproportionate punishment. But Mr. Cotler, is, Mr. Cotler, is it is the worry only the gradation of fault that you describe? Let's let's accept for the purposes of argument that penal negligence could work. What about the problem about foreseeability of what? And, and, and the foreseeability of harm, and in particular, the harm as manifested in the violent offenses. I think, I think in fairness to the appellant and to the majority in the Court of Appeal, this was a concern. Um, 
so you have our position on what the fault threshold set out by uh, 33.1 uh, sub 2 is. Uh, we think it follows from the language of the provision and, and we uh, I think probably agree with the Empowerment Council uh, in relation to this. Um, you're looking at, uh, well, the question is what are the risks Parliament thought reasonable people should turn their mind to before consuming an intoxicant? We think the language of the section suggests that there are two elements, uh, loss of awareness or self-control and interference or threat of interference with the bodily integrity of another person. And that's equally clear through the, the language of the section and the legislative history. So, you know, this, I guess, um, raises Justice Moldaver's question about, well, what does an accused have to do? What does an accused have to foresee? Well, what is an, a hypothetical accused? No, right? We know there are drugs out there that make you crazy and violent. And we know that they show up hiding in other drugs. And given the stakes, we think you have to take some responsibility for what you're putting in your body. Uh, you know, is this a known source? Or is it something you're taking because you got it from some random person at a party? Is it something that has a brand name? Or is it just some pill that you don't even know what it is? Is there a standardized dosage for this thing? Or are you just taking whatever is available? Are you taking it alone? Or are you combining it with all sorts of other drugs and, and maybe alcohol? Our position is, depending on what those facts show in a particular case, an accused who meets the fault threshold of section 33.12 is engaging in highly irresponsible behavior that regularly results in catastrophic consequences. And so even if the moral blameworthiness is assessed uh, accurately, and there's no risk of disproportionate uh, attachment of moral blameworthiness, we're talking about somebody whose moral blameworthiness is very high. And Justice Kassir, I'm sort of getting indirectly to answer your question. When you see this kind of conduct punished as a standalone offense, right, dangerous driving causing death or impaired driving causing death, it can result in a life sentence because it carries a profound degree of moral blameworthiness. Conversely, increasingly, we see self-induced intoxication reduced as, uh, and restricted as a defense, even if it may bear on an accused's mental state at the time of the offense. Perfect example of that, section 273.2 sub A sub 1. If you get yourself so intoxicated that you can't tell the difference between yes and no, then that's your responsibility and it's not the complainant's responsibility. Can I ask you, what if the accused did take steps to avoid harm? I mean, if, yes. if, 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 if I've squinted into this section hard mm -hmm. enough uh, to, to, to see um, the negligence standard that you urge us to accept that Parliament legislated, if I squint further, will I see a due diligence defense? Uh, well, I don't think it's a due diligence defense, but the, the burden remains on the Crown to show a marked departure from the standards of uh, a reasonable member of the public. So we gave you one example uh, in our factum where an accused uh, is addicted to crystal meth, uh, knows the potential consequences of crystal meth, and so goes to a safe injection site on where he thinks he's going to be monitored and kept separate from everybody else, so he's not going to hurt everybody. Even if he does lose control of himself, uh, and can't control what he's doing, he still uh, is taking steps to reduce the harm of danger to other people. And we think in that kind of a fact pattern, 
uh, a trier of fact might well conclude that uh, that accused had not departed markedly from the standard of conduct um, expected from uh, a reasonable member of the public and so wouldn't fall within the section and so would still have the defense. Uh, Although on the language uh, of the section, uh, not to belabor it, but on the language of the section, they still departed markedly by interfering with the bodily integrity of another person. Oh, Justice Brown, if, if, if we had an, another 10 minutes, I would love to go through uh, the arguments in favor of... Um, well, this is uh, your second kick at the can. This, this, was, your this was your big chance. Um, look, maybe I can just sum it up in saying, I can refer you to the first few pages of our factum, which I can sum up in saying, uh, the evidence in this case as contained in the statute does not provide the clear and unequivocal intention uh, that you need to find before you conclude that Parliament lost its mind after Davio and decided to start imposing criminal liability on people with no fault requirement and where they hadn't done anything wrong. Um, I think that's about as uh, tightly as I can and, and concisely as I can put it, but I certainly appreciate the linguistic difficulties posed by the language of, of the section. Um, and. Uh, and that is something that uh, um, you will need to overcome. Um, I just want to touch briefly on two final points. Um, the first is, and Justice Kassir, again, I'm returning to your question. I'm not saying that Section 33.1 is perfect or that it doesn't create tension with traditional criminal law principles. I am arguing under Section 1. But this is the point of the Law Reform Commission's divided conclusion. There are no perfect solutions. In fact, Criminal intoxication as a defense resolves some issues but brings a host of others such that the appellant today suggests that it's probably unconstitutional on its own. You don't have to determine that. All you have to determine is that reasonable people could disagree as to whether it was the best response possible. In other words, that you, uh, you only have to reach the same conclusion as the members of the Law Reform Commission. And Chief Justice, can I ask you for just 30 seconds to conclude on my last point? 30 seconds, go ahead. Thank you very much. This isn't new, uh, and this is the significance of your decision in Peno. Yes, it says an element of an offense can't also be a defense, but it says much more than that. It recognizes that where necessary, you can impose liability where the substantive act is unintentional or even involuntary based on a previous decision to become intoxicated. And Justice Lemaire and Justice Wilson and Justice Lerudubay said, yes, that does raise charter concerns, but it is justified under Section 1 because of the need for public safety, accountability, and confidence in the administration of justice, which are exactly the same issues before you in this appeal. And so we say respectfully, the same answer is called for. All right. Thank, Thank you, you very Chief much. Justice. Thank you. Lara Vizoli. Chief Justice, Justices, uh, today I intend to address first whether competing rights should be addressed under Section 7 or Section 1, and then to address the issue of remedy. So dealing first with where the balancing of competing rights should occur in this case. Um, the Attorney General of British Columbia submits that the balancing of rights here is more appropriate under Section 1, and that this case is different from Mills and Derrick. In Mills, of course, the Section 8 rights of the complainant were directly engaged because the provision in question compels disclosure of private records um, where the test is met. In Derek, that wasn't the case, but the privacy rights of the complainant were engaged. 
because both Mills and Derrick and the two cases this court heard last month, JJ and AS, all address procedural rights under Section 7. So while I agree with Mr. Kapoor, ultimately that the balancing here should occur under Section 1, I don't agree that there is no place in Section 7 for the balancing of rights because procedural rights are assessed there too. But particularly those cases deal with the right to a fair trial, which is not an absolute and is balanced by societal interests, and more specifically the right to make full answer and defense, which is not unlimited. The scope of that right is delineated by balancing other rights or interests or values. And in Mills, Justices McLaughlin and Iacobucci explained that Section 1 is concerned with broader values which underlie a free and democratic society, including respect for the inherent dignity of a person and a commitment to social justice and equality, among other values. In Malmo Levine, this court held that to engage in a freestanding inquiry under Section 7 into whether a particular legislative measure strikes the right balance between individual and societal interests would entirely collapse the Section 1 analysis into Section 7. Where competing rights and interests are relevant is in delineating the boundaries of the right in question and the underlying principle of fundamental justice. In the case of the fundamental principles of justice said to be infringed by Section 33.1, the requirement that some or all of the conduct charge be voluntary, and the requirement for a minimum level of mens rea are clearly delineated and they cannot be limited by the competing rights of potential victims, no matter how compelling those rights are. However, those rights then must be considered under the Section 1 analysis. In, in AGBC's submission, the majority of the Ontario Court of Appeal essentially gave no voice to those rights by dismissing the purposes under Section 1 and not considering those rights under Section 7. And in respect of that, uh, the AGBC prefers the Section 1 analysis of Justice Kalar, particularly in in how the purposes of the legislation are articulated. Turning to remedy, um, should this court find that the wording of the provision does not allow for the statutory interpretation urged by my colleagues, um, and that there is a section seven infringement, and that that infringement cannot be justified under section one, then this court must consider the issue of remedy. And the Attorney General of British Columbia submits that this court can and should read in a penal negligence fault requirement, which applies to self-induced intoxication. Now, in the factum, um, we suggested some potential wording, but I submit that it is also open to this court to simply read in that fault requirement without any modification to the section itself. Fault elements in criminal offense provisions are often not explicit, and this court has quite regularly determined and defined the nature of the fault element. For example, in Creighton, unlawful act manslaughter, which requires mens rea for the predicate offense and reasonable foreseeability of bodily harm. In ADH, the requirement now, one for of the problems, One of the problems or one of the consequences, maybe people see it as an advantage, I suppose you could, of reading in is it says there is a charter infringement here which is not justified but we're going to fix it as opposed to giving it back to the relevant legislature in this uh, case parliament so some people who kind of like to make laws would say this is great 
I mean, this is, you know, sort of, you hit uh, pay dirt here. The other view is, you know, we should really be a little more modest in our role and say if there's a problem here, here's the problem, Parliament, um, and the dialogue continues. Justice Rowe, I appreciate that perspective and, and I understand this court's caution in reading in and, and taking on the role of legislator. And what I say to that is that first of all, we're 25 years into this dialogue and this, is, this court is now dealing with this provision. And um, it's, it is a complex problem. It is not an easy problem to solve. That, that's evident from the Law Reform Commission uh, su uh, recommendations, the various provisions that Parliament considered. And outside of the context of Canada, um, internationally it's caused all kinds of different solutions, some of which are harsher than, than our own provisions, some of which are not. Um, some of which have enacted criminal intoxication provisions. But it's a complex problem. And if there is a remedy to this section that is constitutionally compliant and is cohesive with Parliament's intent and objective, then there is no reason not to read in. That's essentially the Schachter test. Um, but doesn't complexity, so, doesn't complexity, though, militate against our um, effectively reading in a solution. There may be other solutions. Several solutions have been put to us, including the uh, creation of a, of a standalone offense on the impaired driving kind of model. And, and, and I'll put this to you as well because, you know, we can read in, but there's limits to reading in. <clears throat> and, and the difficulty here, and I'll put it to you and you can respond to it, um, the difficulty here is that the remedy of the, the remedy, the only reason or, or a significant reason we would be considering remedy here is the text of subsection 2, which, as you've heard me go on and on about ad nauseum, describes the marked departure as being the interference with the bodily integrity of another person while in a state of self-induced intoxication. The language you propose changes that. Right? It actually does what other attorneys general have been urging us to read the section as doing. It's, it turns the self-induced intoxication itself into the marked departure. But that's, that's, that's actually changing legislation. It's saying the marked departure is something different than what Parliament established it as, which you'd have to accept on my hypothesis because that's the interpretation that gets us to the point where we're talking about remedy, if that makes sense. Yes, it does, Justice Brown. It does make sense, and I take your point. Um, and that is one suggestion, but I'm also suggesting to you that you can take the wording of the section as is and also apply a penal negligence standard to self-induced, you can read in a penal negligence standard to self-induced intoxication so that there is a marked departure for both aspects. But in my submission, a marked departure um, where you interfere or threaten to interfere with the bodily integrity of another person, that is, when is that not going to be a marked departure from the standard of care of a reasonable person? 
I mean, there, there's a certain, I, I appreciate what you say about how the section reads, and I'm not quarreling with you about how it reads. But on some fundamental level, it doesn't really make sense. And it's not the preamble, and I know, I know my colleagues have taken you to the preamble, but now we're talking about a remedy, and we're talking about Parliament's intent. And where the preamble is a, is a, broader, uh, a, a broader articulation of the standard of care that can be interpreted to apply to the self-induced intoxication. And that's what I'm suggesting this yeah. court read in. So but while it may be changing the wording, I'm saying it's not changing the intent of the provision. Ms. Cutler is but an Ms. appropriate Cutler. remedy in my submission. Ms. Ms. Cutler. This court has always said that we don't read in, and most recently in G, we don't read in where Parliament has choices to make, unless it's very clear what Parliament would obviously do. And given the range of options to address this, how would reading in, assuming we can get there, how would reading in ever be an appropriate remedy? I'm saying that reading in is an appropriate remedy because this is what Parliament intended and that's, that's what's set out in the preamble. And I see I am out of time. Thank you very much. Noah Vernikovsky. Thank you, Chief Justice. I'd like to start by briefly talking about the accountability objective, um, following which I plan to move to a few other issues that have arisen over the course of, of this hearing here today. In MCA, this court described our criminal justice system as a system of values, and that criminalization is a way that these values are affirmed and communicated. This passage was recently cited in Friesen, as well as in Stone, where this court added that it is incumbent on the judiciary to bring the law into harmony with these prevailing social values. This non-consequentialist function of the criminal law is distinct from its protective function as important in its own right, as this court noted in paragraph 82 of MCA. When Parliament criminalizes conduct, it signals that such conduct encroaches on our society's basic code of values, and the state is concerned about the harm caused by such conduct. It tells victims and would-be victims that the harms they suffer from such conduct is not just a private problem, but is rather a matter of public concern, a concern of us as a society. As with these important aspects of the criminal justice system in mind, that we must assess the pressing and substantive nature of the accountability objective, the degree to which 33.1 pursues its objectives in a minimally impairing manner, and the salutary effects of 33.1. As demonstrated by the reaction to Davio, which was discussed by Justice Slider, and is discussed more importantly in the legislative history that preceded the enactment of 33.1. The notion that someone who recklessly self-induced extreme intoxication could use that morally culpable and objectively risky behavior to negate criminal liability for violence is consistent with important social and legal values. And it is this important objective that's pressing substantial in nature as the court below held. Mr. Wernikowski, I'm, I'm very interested in this, your argument and this kind of communicative function of the criminal law. And I'm wondering, my colleague Justice Rowe earlier alerted us to the relevance of denunciation as opposed to deterrence in understanding the accountability function. Is, are we, is, 
it's interesting that denunciation hasn't hasn't come up in the discussion much up until now. What, what's your sense of its relevance under under the pressing and substantial objective that you're was Parliament seeking to denounce as much as it was to deter? Thank you, Justice Kezer. And in our submissions, uh, that, that is precisely one of the important aspects of the accountability objective. Is this, is this denunciation, which is, which is distinct from deterrence, which is a consequentialist ideal. But it's, 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 this, it's this denunciation, it's this communication, it's this denotation that, that what our society's basic code of values. And I think that that is something that is very important that this, that, that this 33.1 works toward and achieves and that's an objective. Um, and, that's, and that's the point that, that, that I'm hoping to, to make here today. Um, in criminalizing such behavior through the creation of alternative path to liability, um, Parliament sought to bring the law into step with these values which themselves are iterations of charter values that relate to the equality and security of the person rights of women and children who are disproportionately targeted by intoxicated violence based on the record that was before parliament. Um, and this is, a distinction has to be drawn here. This is not to say that the charter should yield to appease an uninformed majority's torch and pitchfork thirst for vengeance. It's, it's distinct. And, and this distinction, I think this court aptly drew in, in MCA, particularly, um, around paragraph 80. Um, the point here is that legislation that seeks to bring the criminal justice system in line with fundamental social values, especially when those social values are informed by charter values, is furthering an important aspect of our criminal justice system. Um, it's about responding to the moral blameworthiness and harm that results from that blameworthiness. Um, and not just about punishing the morally innocent to take an eye for an eye. So that's, that's our submissions on, on the accountability objectives that, that we submit is, is integral both at the pressing and substantive purpose phase of the Section 1 analysis, and then also when assessing its, its salutary effects and whether alternative options are, meet, meet the, this objective in the same manner. Um, moving on... I, I, I do not want to dwell on the issue of interpretation too, in too great detail rather than to point the, the, the court to our written submissions uh, at paragraph 7 to 36. Um, but I, I would like to take the court to 33.1 sub 1. We focus a lot on 33.1 sub 2, but I think sub 2 is best understood in relation to sub 1. And I, I'm going to walk through that briefly here. So it starts by saying... It is not a defense to an offense referred to in subsection three. So there's no need to go further unless there's a violent general intent offense, unless there's already been a voluntary or involuntary interference with the bodily integrity of another person. That's already in the opening words of sub one. Then it moves on that the accused by reason of self-induced intoxication, so we have self-induced intoxication, lack the general intent or the voluntariness required to commit the offense, so we have the automatism. Where the accused departed markedly from the standard of care as described in sub two. This in our submissions is an indication that more is coming. We have the violent offense, we have the automatism, we have the self-induced toxication, but there's something else. And that's what we're looking at when we're looking at sub two. 
And that's what in our submissions, um, why in our submissions, the, the, the phrase self-induced in that context should be read to apply to all of the, the automatism, the extreme intoxication as well. That, um, subject to any questions, I, I, I would like to leave the interpretation question there, um, rather than to, other than to submit uh, that uh, we stand by our written submissions on, the, on, on that point. There's some disagreement in, in the written submissions before this court about how 33.1 operates. Whether it removes a defense, whether it creates an alternative path to liability, or um, whether it even creates an offense. Um, in our submissions, I, I think the resolution of this question is to start with uh, an appreciation of what is the defense of automatism. It's, it's, not, it's not a true defense, rather, but, the fa but a fact that if proven, leads to the failure to prove an element of the offense as traditionally defined. Voluntariness and mens rea. So in this case, there really isn't a substantive difference between a provision that removes this defense and a provision that creates an alternative path to liability for certain offenses. In both cases, the provision acts in the exact same way and the difference is semantic rather than substantive. The provision expands the existing offense provisions or creates an alternative path to liability for the existing offense provisions to allow for conviction for certain elements of that offense that were previously essential, no longer need to be proven, were alternative essential elements of the offense are now proven. The, the short way of saying that is in the absence of 33.1, it being shown that the accused was incapable of understanding what he was doing or that the act was wrong um, would be a defense, but if he got himself into that state voluntarily, he can't rely on it. That's the short version, uh, but is it, is it inaccurate? Thank you, Justice Rowe. Um, the, the point that, that, that I'm hoping to make there is that the difference between creating an alternative path to liability by introducing uh, new essential elements or alternative essential elements and um, removing a defense that was previously thought of as uh, a failure to prove an essential element is, is substantially the same. Um, and, and that, and that it, it's with that effect that, that the analysis must focus rather than, rather than on whether something removes a defense or, or ra rather than there is an alternative path to liability. Uh, created. Um, to conclude, seeing that, that, that time is limited, I, I'd also like to point the, uh, draw the court's attention to a decision from 1990, the Queen and Logan, in which the common intention party provisions were upheld. The, the parallel is not, is not exact, but in our, in our submissions, um, in upholding that provision, the court held that different paths to the same offense do not offend section 7 and 11D even when those differing paths have different levels of moral blameworthiness, and even when those differing paths allow for conviction of, of that offense uh, that is neither intended nor subjectively foreseeable. And in our submissions, there, there, there are some, some parallels that can be drawn, be drawn there. All right. um, subject, subject to any, any questions that the court might have, those are my Thank submissions. You. Thank you very much.
Lara Kinkartz. Thank you, Chief Justice. Leaf submits that when assessing the constitutionality of Section 33.1, all of the rights that Parliament sought to balance must be given meaningful consideration, both under the Section 7 and the Section 1 analysis. I'll rely on our factum for the Section 7 argument, and I propose to focus Leaf's oral argument on the Section 1 analysis. In particular, Leaf submits that Parliament's accountability purpose is a pressing and substantial objective. The parliamentary record makes it clear that accountability was seen as one tool for redressing the long-standing inequality experienced by women and girls who are subjected to gender-based violence and the role that intoxicated violence plays in perpetuating that inequality. Women and children are disproportionately the victims of intoxicated violence and Section 33.1 was enacted to address that. In the court below, both Justice Slatter and Justice Kular described the accountability objective as holding individuals accountable for the violent acts they commit while intoxicated to the point of automatism. And while that is, of course, true, the accountability objective is not simply about punishing intoxicated offenders. It's much broader than that. The decision about whether to hold such offenders accountable plays an important communicative role, to borrow the, friend, the words of my friend for the Attorney General of Saskatchewan. It sends a message about who and what our society values and is willing to protect, and at whose expense. As one witness explained during the committee hearings, self-induced intoxicated violence against women sends the message that women are so unimportant that it's not worth the care it takes to avoid that behavior. Another witness testified that the extreme intoxication defense works to reinforce and excuse male violence against women. It does that by attributing the blame to alcohol or drugs, thereby minimizing the significance of the violence and asserting that, pursuant to charter values, someone in that state who physically assaults, sexually assaults, or even kills a woman is morally innocent. When someone deliberately consumes a drug, knowing that it may cause them to lose control over their actions, they are taking a risk with the safety and lives of those around them. As Justice Slatter put it, they are running the risk of turning themselves into an agent deprived of the ability to exercise self-control, but who retains the capacity to injure or kill. Section 33.1 sends the message that if someone chooses to take that risk, they will be held accountable and that the law will protect those they victimize who are disproportionately women and girls. If offenders are not held accountable in these circumstances, women and girls will continue to bear the risk of extreme intoxicated violence. And I'd emphasize to the court that the importance of this message is not merely symbolic. At the time of the parliamentary hearings, only 10% of sexual assaults were being reported, a number that remains roughly the same today. There was evidence before parliament that if the extreme intoxication defense was available, it would discourage reporting by sending the message that violence against women is tolerated or excusable. There was also evidence that the availability of the defense could affect decisions about the founding and prosecution of these crimes when women did choose to report them. All of this evidence showed the link between accountability 
and access to justice for women and girls. LEAF submits that that fact must be recognized in the Section 1 analysis to ensure that all the charter rights in play are given meaningful consideration. Today, more than 25 years after Section 33.1 was enacted, gender-based violence continues to have a devastating effect on women and girls, and intoxication remains closely linked to that violence. In 2015, almost 90% of victims of police-reported sexual assaults were women. Three years later, in 2018, only 5% of the most serious incidents of sexual assault came to the attention of police. Between 2016 and 2021 in Canada, a woman or girl was killed on average once every two and a half days. And between 2007 and 2017, 63% of women and girls who were killed died at the hands of an intoxicated aggressor. So in light of that, when considering the accountability objective, LEAF submits that this honourable court must consider the extensive evidence about the important role accountability plays in redressing the inequality experienced by women and girls. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any reply, Ms. Bidolf? Yes, thank you. Just four points in reply. First, my friend from the Attorney General of Alberta claims that Mr. Brown, the facts established that Mr. Brown had snacked on mushrooms indiscriminately and consumed 12 to 14 ounces of alcohol. In my submission, that is contrary to the findings of fact that were made by the trial judge, and I would refer this court to paragraph 39 of the trial decision, where the court held that there was no reliable evidence of how much mushrooms or alcohol were consumed. Second, in my submission, where the Attorney General of Canada is asking you to read in a mental element to the offense, he's confusing two things. There's a difference between reading in a mental element where none is stipulated in the text of the provision, and reading in a mental element that contradicts the actual text of the provision. Section 33.1 has a mental element. It deems the standard of marked departure to be met based only on the consequence, the commission of a violent offense. The Attorney General of Canada is asking this court to rewrite the provision under the guise of purposive interpretation. In our submission, a purposive interpretation cannot be stretched that far. My third point is with respect to the argument of the Attorney General of Saskatchewan and the so-called communicative purpose of the provision. In my submission, that purpose is stated at too broad a level of abstraction to be able to anchor the Oaks analysis in this case. All criminal law denounces the conduct that it targets. That's the point of criminal law. If this court were to adopt this communicative purpose as the purpose of the provision, imagine how the Oaks analysis would go. If the purpose of the provision is to, de is to denounce all violent conduct, criminalizing all violent conduct is obviously rationally connected to that purpose. Any alternative that would result in some violent conduct escaping criminal liability could not substantially achieve the purpose of criminalizing and denouncing all violent conduct. So if you were to adopt that as the purpose of the provision, you might as well skip straight to the final proportionality analysis because the rest of the test becomes redundant. My final submission is with respect to the argument of the Attorney General of British Columbia and the remedy that should be imposed. The Attorney General of British Columbia asks this court to read in a marked departure standard at the consumption stage. In my submission, that would be directly contrary to the intent of Parliament, and you can see that in the statement of Minister Rock at seven reading, second reading. 
he stated that it was Parliament's intent that there be no need for the Crown to prove anything on a case-by-case -case basis. Parliament's intention was that proof of intoxication would be proof of liability, full stop. Further, if this court were to accept the argument that it should substantially rewrite the provision through a reading in, this would create in my submission both an institutional problem and a rule of law problem. It would create an institutional problem because this court is not a legislator. Its role is to interpret the law as written by Parliament and not to write the law for Parliament. It creates a rule of law problem because this sort of extensive reading in erodes the primacy of the text of a written statutory provision. It would mean that section 33.1 does not mean what it says, but rather it means what this court says it should say. If such a significant amendment is necessary, then in my submission, the proper remedy is to strike down the provision as a whole and give Parliament the chance to fix the constitutional issue. Subject to any further questions, those are our submissions in reply. Thank you very much. Thank you all for your submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.